Hell yeah, I love that song. That's Every perfect. Single time. Every single time. Uh, welcome to the greatest podcast, podcast in, in history. history. I'm Dylan. I'm Mitch. And like I said, this is the greatest podcast in history. Indeed, it is. Uh, we have a great, thrilling, very happy, Ooh. cheerful topic boom, to boom, talk boom. about today. Great, uh, thrilling, and cheerful. All three of the best things in the world. Yeah, and you know what? Our three other things, not as amazing. Oh as, as <laughs> great segue, Mitch. Um, three, three words called the Ku Klux Klan. Yes. Yeah, it gives you the heebie-jeebies, too. Yeah, KKK. Uh, not everyone's favorite men who parade around in little white bed sheets trying to act tough. Yeah. Ugh. Bunch of dipshits. Yeah. Uh, sorry to swear. I'm not really sorry. They uh, ruin ghost costumes for everyone. For every true. Halloween, you can't just wear a white sheet anymore. I know. It's messed up. Um, yeah. I mean, Irony has destroyed our brains. Uh, one of the most ruthless terrorist organizations in the history of the United States. Uh... Uh, depending on your belief systems, uh, personification of pure evil. Uh, I don't know what your morality structure is to those listening, um, but they're bad. Yeah, very, very bad. Um, we're going to use the term terrorist organization to describe them because that's exactly what they were and, and are. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, that just because they aren't a, gr- a good group of people doesn't mean that they aren't misunderstood. Uh, and there's a lot of kind of myths about them um, and kind of misunderstandings that even contemporary people have about the Ku, Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Um, I with most, uh, I guess, almost things that have such a place in American myth, um, they get their, the history of the KKK gets skewed and distorted throughout history, especially with their, when they're, when something is described so much in popular culture, uh, it's almost impossible to separate fact from re- uh, fiction. Uh, and so hopefully we'll do a little a bit of that today. Yeah. Um, and so I think what we... the First off the bat, we need to talk about two different KKKs. Uh, there was the original Ku Klux Klan that was founded in the wake of the Civil War uh, and operated until the very early se- 1870s. And then it was largely disbanded and became kind of a non-really organized group of people and just kind of fizzled out. And then there was a, a second KKK that was formed in the wake of um, The Birth of a Nation, the film, the film that came out in the 1910s. D.W. Griffiths. D.W. Griffiths, Birth of a Nation, um, which inspired a revival and coincided with the thing that we've kind of talked about a little bit, the Lost Cause myth about the Civil War. Um, and so there's two different clans, and both kind of operated very differently and there's a lot of different myths around both of them. I think what we're going to talk about mostly uh, in this podcast is the one that came about, the original one that came about after the Civil War. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about the KKK... Mostly because Mitch knows the most about that one, and he wrote a paper on it. So yeah, that's true. what we're talking about. A little glimpse behind the curtain. Yeah. I'm sure, not, not that we won't come back to the uh, later KKK. Yeah, there's much to dig in there as well, especially yeah. about how they essentially ran Indiana for... You know, a long ass period of time. Yeah, like they were like it's insane. But that's for another podcast. Yeah. Um, so we typically think of the KKK, like what images come come to mind? Uh, Grand dragons, burning crosses. Uh, any scene from the movie where what's his face curb stomps a dude? American History X. That kind of stuff. That um, great movie. Uh, that's a great movie. Have you not seen it? I've never oh, seen man, it. Oh man, that's intense as hell. Okay. Um, also, just you know, Django Unchained. That like the classic. 
uh, rednecks wearing hoods. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's funny that you bring up Django Unchained because the hoods the people were wearing in that one typically when you think of like the first image that comes to mind is like a ghost like figure with a guy with a white pointy hat uh, long white robes and all that stuff uh, dement- uh, not Dementors Death Eaters from Harry Potter but exactly black instead of black yeah um, and she was really overt with her imagery yeah not not very uh, casual or, that's super subtle yeah um, so th- but those are really images that came about in the second clan uh, that was kind of based off of Teutonic Knights or you know, mythological knights from D.W. Griffith's birth, the birth of a nation. The first clan did not look like that. They didn't have whites, all white outfits. They didn't have like all uniforms and crosses on their on their heart over their hearts. They were a lot more like what you see in Django Unchained, where they just had like burlap sacks covering their heads, and they're like, I can't see shit. What the hell am I supposed to do? Um, and they just go right around burning stuff and look like you know what an organization is great when they have to cover your faces to be a part of it exactly I think that's like the number one clue that they're up to no good yep um, except for Anonymous Anonymous oh is, boy you know fantastic we just don't want them people. to hack us that's why he's saying that exactly uh, we're yeah the greatest podcast in history is probably number one they're probably we got a lot of protected data we gotta keep seeing yes <laughs> not at all um, so the original clan really came about it was founded on as kind of like a fraternal organization we've kind of talked a little bit about spiritualism back in our uh, Dreyfus episode mm-hmm. uh, and how kind of in the mid 1800s to the late 1800s there was this kind of surge in popularity about you know secret organizations whether they were for charity or whether they were for weird demented crap uh, doing really weird stuff with other stuff. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> That's a great use of words yeah, by Mitch. Uh, uh, very, very eloquent. Uh, yeah, really eloquent. Uh, letting my thesaurus out. <laughs> so no. the Masonic, like, temple, like, the Masonic Brotherhood. Yeah, like, exactly. Experienced the resurgence at this time. Yeah, so the Ku Klux Klan was kind of founded initially as one of those organizations, just as kind of like a group of to get people together uh, to do whatever, and it didn't really have any overtly racist or overtly political or terrorist message beyond that. Um, but the fact that it was founded by a lot of Confederate veterans and the fact that it was based largely in the South didn't help it staying that way. In yeah. all, in, in it may not have been overt racism, but covert. Yes, exactly. Like, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest was one of the founders of the original KKK. Yeah. Who was, like, an avowed racist, a horrible guy. Like, uh, he's con- many consider him the first, like, guerrilla warfare leader in the Civil War. If you want to make the argument that, like, Civil War was, like, partly guerrilla warfare, you always look at uh, Bedford Forrest. If you go to, like, there's, like, a million schools named after him in the South right now, even though, like, he's this horrible, like, dude. Um, so, like, it may not have been straight up, like, over racism, but it was 100% there the whole time. Yeah. Um, and I was just going to say, it quickly switched to being over. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it was something that you can't really control. There's a lot, with all the tensions bubbling up underneath the surface, uh, it kind of quickly became a tool for political terrorism. And what we mean by that is the act of of people of clan members and other organization members going out and threatening people at the polls, uh, threatening people who are gonna vote Republican or we're gonna vote for anything aside from 
Southern Democrat leaders. Because at this point in time, Reconstruction was going on in the South. Yeah. This is immediately post-Civil War. So um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not intense Reconstruction, but the the full, full-fledged Reconstruction was happening at this time. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of people in the South really... Radical Reconstruction. Sorry. Yes. Uh, people in the South really felt threatened because by people like uh, Northern Carpetbaggers, who were who got the name because they apparently came from the North with so much equipment and supplies that they wrapped it in a carpet and just slung it over their shoulder and carried everything around with them uh, and came to the South to like sell their goods at absurd prices to poor, impoverished uh, Southerners who lost everything in the war or whatever. So. White Southerners. When we say the people in the South, generally, it's going to mean, like, white Southerners. Yeah, exactly. Um, but kind of a, some of this, a lot of this information comes from uh, Alan Trelease. Uh, he wrote a book in the 1970s called White Terror, the Ku Klux Klan Conspiracy in Southern Reconstruction. And it was really the first book to take an in-depth look at the KKK and study it as a as it transitioned from this kind of small uh, fraternal organization to 1971. Sorry, is that when the book was written? Yeah, it was published oh, okay. in 1971. Yeah. So that's, I guess, uh, I haven't read this book yet, but just looking at that date, that's how late it was for us to, for us to get really get an historical look at the KKK. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's 100 years after it's initial surgeons and stuff like that, uh, which is, yeah, it's crazy that people didn't study it as, as this kind of organization, didn't see it as a terrorist organization. And that, that kind of view of the KKK has really, thankfully, come to prominence amongst yeah. historians, and a lot more work is being done on it uh, as this organization that would, you know, terrorize people unless they voted Democratic or didn't vote at all. Yeah. So that was one of the main tools of of taking away any kind of political activism that African newly freed African Americans had, um, because actually there was moderate success. A lot of people don't know this. But there was moderate success in instilling or, or placing African-Americans in positions of leadership in the government across the yeah. South. Especially when the federal troops were there. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, federal troops were sent down. They were placed into, the states were placed into military dic- districts. Mm-hmm. And there was really this heavy hand. The problem is that that can only last for so long before the public, the general public starts, you know, becoming tired of spending so much money and so much time and effort on on reconstructing these people who they didn't see as, you know, good people. You yeah. know, Northerners are like, why should we even be bothering to help those poor white Southerners? I don't care about them. They rebelled. Exactly. Screw them. Screw that whole read part of the country. We won. Yeah. Um, but that kind of apathy leads opens the door for people like the people like the Klan members to come in and instill their their power across the South. Um, exactly. I mean, you have like, and I mean, to, to be fair, the federal government, when they sent down troops, they didn't really have like a plan for what was going to happen. There wasn't any long-term solutions being discussed. Uh, it was considered just something that like would fix itself eventually if it lasted long enough. I mean, and also, even if you were anti-slave, doesn't mean that you were essentially that you were like not racist. There were still plenty of people who didn't believe in slavery but believed that blacks were less than whites. 
at the yeah. time. And so, like, long-term plans to, you know, racial for racial equality, uh, non-legal non-legal versions of it um, didn't exist at the time, weren't considered. Uh, presidents got elected by essentially agreeing to end Reconstruction. So there wasn't any sort of long-term plan other than send down troops for as long as we can afford it. And that was it. Exactly. And a lot of historians have come said that there was genuine shock uh, by a lot of Northerners that so the Southerners kind of came back and uh, they expected the Southerners to, be, to have their tails between their legs yeah. this entire time, to just lay down and accept their fate and let the Northern government go in and do what they want and set up um, kind of more fair yeah. environments like that. Uh, so there was the Northern public was genuinely surprised that these Southerners were coming up and saying, "No, we're not going to stand." Even though we, even though we lost the war, even though we lost, you know, half of our white uh, male class, um, we don't care anymore. We're still going to fight you in the courtroom or fight you outside of the genuine political environment and do whatever we can. Um, yeah, we're. <laughs> The end, the end of the, we were not, no one was, the Union was not prepared for the end of the Civil War at all. It's kind of like, okay, well, we won, uh, now that's it, we're not going to worry about it anymore. And that can, like, ending a war is a thousand million times harder than starting a war, and especially ending a war successfully, where you can start to uh, repatriate people who hadn't been in the United States, and then do it successfully so you can reintegrate them in the population and espouse what values you were supposedly fighting for. This wasn't like a land grab, essentially, the Civil War. Uh, I mean, kind of, it was to bring back the states. But there's also a certain cultural element of it. You wanted, you were fighting for uh, the South to accept the cultural values of the North, which I, you can make a very strong argument, I think, that military isn't the way to do that. Like, killing people isn't a way to make them believe what you believe. Yeah. Um, but, you know, no one in the North realized that because yeah. they're idiots. And we'll run, run, real quick, one of the greatest ironies of the Civil War is that both the Northerners and Southerners said that they held on to different values, but in actuality they were the same in the sense that the South tried to hold up people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams as their founding fathers, mm-hmm. and then people in the North were saying, no, they're our founding yeah. fathers. They were they shared literally everything. Yep. Just like that. They shared the same history, and that the values that were inspired by that founding father's generation, they were the same heroes to whether you lived in Maine or the, whether you lived in Georgia. Um, and that's just, you know, the, that they didn't realize that they actually shared that history um, it's kind of just strange that they both try to twist it in their own direction. Um, but so the KKK at this time, as it started to become more violent and lash out and uh, trying to start really terrorizing the countryside, they didn't do it in white hoods. They didn't do it in you know nice crisp uniforms and stuff like that. They did it in whatever they could find. Sometimes they literally had, like in Django Unchanged, they had a burlap sack over the head. Uh, but a lot of them started putting on way more elaborate masks and, and costumes. And you can do a quick Google search for like original KKK costumes and stuff like that. And these things are way more terrifying than the white hoods. Like they have like weird bug eye. It looks like things from where the wild things are, oh, kind of like yeah. like fuzzy 
bug-eyed and like have their own mouths on it. Uh, it's just it's hard to describe without seeing it, but they're actually really really creepy. It's like True Detective really... and Carcosa. Did you ever watch that show? No. That's uh, great. Check it out. All right, we'll do. I feel like yeah, it's I feel like it's that. Having not seen it, I feel like that's a great description. Yeah, um, but they're just weird and like they were pink and stuff like that. Um, and it was all just to try and make them either just dis- disguise themselves or to kind of put Don on a different persona. Uh, there are accounts of them trying to act as if they were Confederate ghosts when they came into um, an African-American family's home, saying that we um, were sent out, were kicked out of hell because the, the devil thought that we were too evil. And we've come back from the battle of First Bull Run or First Manassas to terrorize you. Um, and uh, one of the historians here, Dr. Story at DePaul, uh, we kind of were talking in whether or not the African Americans really believed that they were ghosts um, or whether they were just like playing along to say, okay, you're being stupid, but you're going to kill my family if I don't play along with this is kind of up for debate. So, some of like the court records, some historians would kind of interpret that as. You know, the African Americans were really superstitious and they believed that those were actual ghosts, which is what the Klan members preyed on. Uh, but whether or not they actually thought that they were real ghosts is up for debate. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that they use ghosts as like one of their primary means of fear because of the spiritualism that was happening at the time. It was considered like a legitimate like fear someone could have. Uh, whether or not like the pe- the specific people they were targeting believed in it, it was like something in the culture that was believed to be like something that could exist or you could get in touch with. Uh, it wasn't there wasn't a it wasn't a small minority. It was a very big portion of the population who believed you could get in touch with your ancestors. Yeah, and I, I, you know you can probably see a clear connection with a lot of Civil War widows and other families of deceased soldiers probably re- actually did believe and looked out for any kind of connection they could have but I doubt that any African American would want to would want to reach out and connect with the ghost of a confederate soldier yeah probably <laughs> unless probably they could not. like re-kill them yeah hmm. uh, another another favorite activity of of clan members at this time was wearing women's undergarments scary Yes. Very scary. Perhaps the most terrifying thing that they would do. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but they they would go in in their costumes and whatnot, and they would go in and, and find the dresser or the drawers where the woman kept their, her clothes, rifle through them and find her undergarments and then put them on, either over their costumes or they would take off parts of their costumes and then wear the women's undergarments and then dance around the house. Hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't discuss this in our book. I feel like that's like a super either you can read that. There's like two readings on that. I feel like, like one, it was like a psychosexual thing where mm-hmm. like they're because they're being inhibited, uninhibited. Finally, they can do those like, like they're because they were. I'm sure it was considered like it was a against sexual mores of the time that, to do that. To like cross dressing wasn't a thing back then unless you're doing it for fun or like that's a joke. Um, so either that or it was a way to just get into like the most private places of their lives like what you wear your undergarments are things most people don't ever see except if they're your family and yeah. so rifling through those private and then putting them on and parading them around the house is also pretty psychologically damaging yeah um, I mean yeah I, 
don't remember any kind of immediate or explicit discussions of it uh, or explanations that come to pop out of mind. I'm, I'm sure it was discussed in some of the books I read, uh, but I think you're you're right, probably about the more most per- personal aspects about someone's lives. Um, you know, I was kind of seeing movies when a house gets robbed. I think one of the toughest scenes to see is if they go into their bedrooms and they see their dressers pulled out yeah. and their clothes strewn about. Um, that is extremely personal. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you can definitely make an argument that that was probably one of the main causes, but also just the fact that it was so ridiculous. These yeah. guys, I mean, these guys were acting as performers, mm-hmm. and they they shouted and they danced around and the, they paraded in their costumes and they made extremely elaborate costumes and so it really was something that they were trying to go all out and it was just like some um, performance for them acting as if they were someone else some ghost, some civil war ghost and sent straight out of hell um, and doing anything that was just as ridiculous as possible to try and terrorize these people um, um, but yeah, I think the show aspect of it is, I think that's something, a big important thing to point out just because it shows how much time and effort was put into this. This wasn't just like some hicks who got drunk some night and then went around to scare people. These were like highly educated people who knew what they were doing and were planning this out in increasing like terroristic acts. These, these were like, these were planned things that they did, like raids that happened. It wasn't just a couple of good old boys getting together for a night. It was like coordinated uh, attacks on people, which, I mean, and either good old boys or or coordinated attacks is both terrorism, but this is just a higher level showing just how much hatred and vitriol was put and time was put into this. Like making those costumes takes time. Yeah. You can't, you couldn't just go to like, you know, the Target and buy a Halloween costume. You just sew that yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just pulled up some, some of my notes from my paper and a lot of the historians are kind of talking about how this was the time, this was a period in time when words like restlessness, boredom, and longing were becoming increasingly popular uh, and used by young men of that period. And the clan was kind of a way for them to go out and escape the, the boredom of rural, rural life or even urban life. Um, whether, yeah, because uh, we, we talked about in our last podcast about kind of the five points like that, so many people moving to the cities to create new, exciting experiences. That was kind of the northern phenomenon. That was kind of the, the young men who were displaced by society were moved to the city, and that was their excitement. The Klan and other organizations like the Klan were an outlet for adventure that these young men who are restless and longing and bored could cling to. And, and they knew exactly what they were doing, but it was also just a way for them to like, get their rocks off, essentially. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you make the connection to the five points that we talked about last week. Because here, as is a quote from Parsons again, talks about the development of the Ku Klux Klan and the development of their myth through the media. Um, Parsons writes, uh, Stories of the Klan began with attackers and victims that were then shaped by elites gathering the testimony of victims and witnesses. The evolution of ideas about the Ku Klux Klan would never have progressed without the cooperation of the national press. So like we saw with five points and the development of the slums, in New York, the myth and the the power that the Ku Klux Klan attained was done partly through uh, their the propagation of their stories through the uh, national media. Mm-hmm. You can't 
even in this time, you can't spread your ideas and let have no people without no oh, let people know about you without the cooperation of the media. And even if the media is painting you in this negative light, like some of these uh, places were, I mean, of course they were uh, ones that also put them in a positive light. But even people are going to read these ideas and say, oh, that seems like something that I might be interested in. Yeah. And so this national media, whether they were trying to or not, were still a big part of the reason why uh, the Ku Klux Klan spread from its origins in the South and spread throughout the South as well. Yeah. Um, and that was actually from Elaine France Parsons' Ku Klux Klan, The Birth yes. of the Klan During Reconstruction, uh, came out in 2015, so kind of a recent... Um, recent discussion on the Klan yeah. um, and, and actually kind of contrasts with Trilles, who published his book in 1971, um, kind of using more statistical and cultural and analysis on the Klan. Um, Which is a very 70s thing to do, if you want to look at the historiography. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, because Parsons kind of looks at the Klan as more of a, a cultural construction. Um, that she kind of attributes four, she makes kind of four big claims about the Klan. Uh, first, that Northerners, like we were kind of talking about, were responsible for making the Klan what it became through their interest and their priorities, uh, kind of like, you know, looking in the media and what they cared about. They didn't yeah. necessarily care about the, the poor African Americans who were being terrorized. They cared about um, that this kind of visceral action Violence, violence was was definitely catching their eyes, and they thought it was terrible. They really did, but they couldn't look away at yeah. the same time. It's just like the same same dilemma we have in every all media today. Even um, she also makes a claim um, that it was a way for white rural Democrats to be part of the modernizing nation that was being driven by the North. Um, kind of like we were talking about, uh, Northern men moved to the, the city. Uh, Southerners uh, joined clans, essentially. Um, And that the clan became kind of an identifiable voice to uh, outlet to voice discussions about Reconstruction. It's because, you know, they were so frustrated with everything that was going on. And that finally, being part of the clan gave one identity in a time when ways of life was rapidly shifting or even vanishing. Um, Because this was... America did start its industrial revolution a little bit before the, before the Civil War, but it was really after the Civil War that it kicked exactly. off, and life was rapidly yeah. changing. Well, and the, I mean, the South was destroyed by the Civil War. Yeah. Like, farm, millions of acres were burned down. Uh, you know, half the male population was dead. Uh, is left the, left the South immensely poor without a lot of manufacturing, uh, which meant that it was being left behind and forced to change very quickly. Um, which destroyed a lot of uh, families at yeah. the time. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's just interesting. It's um, kind of the same thing that was hap- that would happen, or it would come to a climax really right before World War One. This this trend that was going on. It was a it was a Euro- United States trend. Uh, it was definitely heavily influenced by Europe, and it was going on in Europe as well. Uh, these kind of generations of young men that felt isolated and didn't know what to do. Because um, we can kind of talk about the futurists and then Jane Fussards and all that stuff, and it would come to a boiling point in World War One, where all those ideas would really be crushed, yeah. in a sense. And this was the start of it in the United States. So you can kind of see where these kinds of motivations would become would come from when you're 
a poor white southerner thinking about joining the Klan, it's your outlet to vent your frustrations, to find some identity, um, and also express your racism. Exactly. And yeah, it just goes to show just how like deeply in it, like integrate not integrated, like deeply integral racism was to the mindset of many white Southerners. Because as we mentioned, like we as we talked about earlier on the podcast, um, with France and the Dreyfusards or with the futurists over in Italy, like there was a lot of this, these types of opinions going on in uh, the United States and of America, but they didn't all end out racist. A lot of them ended with like acts of violence and terror, but they weren't all explicitly racist. But the fact that like, so people in the South were still feeling these same feelings, they're going through the same uh, cultural changes as in other places, but because, but racism became such a huge part of it because it was such a big part of the Southern culture at the time. Yeah. So it was not, they're not necessarily connected, but they 100% influenced each other. This worldwide phenomenon that was happening of this like sense of modernity coming on, not knowing what to do with it, got tied up with the uh, extreme racism of the South and it combined to form the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, exactly. It's just interesting because you know that's extremely complex yeah. and very complicated, and it's it's so it's impo- always important to remember you can't just boil things down to one thing. Um, that some things are more powerful than other things. Racism in, in this organization was extremely overt, and you see in everything that they did. But in their minds, it wasn't their main driving force. Exactly. Like if mo- I. I venture to say that if a lot of people in the Ku Klux Klan hadn't lived in the South, hadn't been born in the South, but were living in Italy at the time, or living in Germany or in France, they would have become people like the Futurists, or they would become people like the Dreyfusards at the time, because they wouldn't have grown up with that. They would have felt the same modernity changes, but they wouldn't have grown up with that inherent racism. Yeah. Um, so there's another force that was going on in, in the South, and even in the North, that a lot of these white Southerners felt threatened by. And that was something called the Union League. Uh, it was an organization that was formed in response to all these terrorist acts that were happening by uh, the Klan or its other... Uh, there's also like the Order of the White Carnation, uh, I think it was in, in Louisiana, all these other terrorist groups. Um, and the Union League was a predominantly African-American organization uh, that used paramilitary tactics to counter the paramilitary tactics being used by the Klan. Because, as we kind of talked about, the Klan was essentially the Democratic military of the South. Democratic Uh, Party. Yeah, the Democratic Party. Uh, And so they'd have weapons at the polls, making sure you're towing the party line, or if you were going to vote differently, they would threaten you or try and kill you or hurt you. And so the Union League members kind of formed, and they would carry their own weapons, and it would be, you know, lines of African Americans, oftentimes Civil War veterans, because um, people forget about 150,000 African Americans enlisted in the Union Army, and they fought a number of really important battles and played a huge part in the Union War and Union victory. But so, they're left out of the history. Yeah. Um, I, I do love the movie Glory, though. It's... Yeah, really good. Um, you, you, you can criticize it. No, it's always great because they have a scene where someone's head blows up, but it's obviously like a watermelon blowing up. Oh, uh, that's great. So. I have to rewatch it just for that. Um, it, has, it definitely has its flaws. Um, some more important than others. Yeah, but it's a pretty interesting. It's a good movie yeah. to watch in school, I guess. I watched it like five times throughout my middle school, high school career. <laughs> Every teacher shows that movie. Yeah. Um, but...
something just weird happened. We'll figure it out later. Yeah, we'll figure it out and post edits. Um, so <laughs> we'll we'll send it down to the editing floor and uh, have our team, team take a look at it. Uh, so we were talking about the Union League. Not yeah. sure. If, not sure how much got caught. I'll give a quick summary uh, of the Union League. Um, it was basically a a predominantly African American organization formed in response to the KKK. Uh, because the KKK members were showing up at the polls with weapons, threatening people. So African-Americans, largely Union veterans, would show up and march through the streets with their own weapons um, in kind of a more militaristic and structured manner. And so that was another threat that lots of white Southerners felt you know, terrified of. Yeah. Um, and the Union League became victim demonized by a lot of the presses, just as the, the Klan did, uh, but to a different degree and for different reasons um, because it was African-Americans. And there's this kind of great irony when you're talking about something like the Union League because a lot of the Northerners who were quickly becoming tired and exhausted by the federal government's efforts in the South um, of, of structuring it and reconstruction we're starting to raise complaints like, you know, why don't the, why doesn't the Afri- why don't the African Americans just defend themselves? Um, but at the same time, they said, God forbid, don't give them weapons. Yeah. And so it's like kind of like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Are they supposed to defend themselves, or are they supposed to like be on their own and you know self-sustain um, themselves, or do they, you know, rise up and actually defend themselves? I mean, how do you do that? Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean that's like we still see that same uh, that same sort of uh, not conundrum, but uh, I guess just like racial inability to view racial questions without like kicking yourself in the nuts um, with like the same thing of like riots. Like, why do like black people you know like riot in their own communities? That's not helping anybody. It's like that's not the question to ask. Like, there's so much more at play there. And so asking someone to defend themselves while not using guns is, like, the same thing. Yeah. Like, don't be an idiot. Like, yeah. It's just, like, and, I mean, and people at this time were, like, we're dumb, I guess. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously there are smart people, but, and, like, there's dumb people today. Um, but people, like, didn't have, no one really had the ability to talk about race in America. Like, it just those type of questions just didn't exist. Like, there wasn't this sort of, like, there was this anti-slavery movement, sure, uh, and this is specifically talking about white people at the time, um, but there wasn't, like, this mass idea of, like, equality for, like, the races. Like, maybe underneath the law, but not for, like, racial science was still big at this point, like, measuring skull sizes and stuff. Like, all this was going on at the same time. And so, to some, to some people, like, the question of, why don't you defend yourself but not use guns, didn't seem like the oxymoron that it was. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting to look at things like the Union League and the Klan uh, being used in these ways at the polls to enforce their political opinions it's, as kind of a, in a larger trend. And it would, um, just as kind of the dis- or isolated and lonely bored uh, young men would come to a, a climax in, in World War One, these kinds of paramilitary groups would come to a, a climax in World War Two. Uh, the the Nazi party in Germany grew up out of paramilitary groups that were just you know strong men who were there to defend the poles to you know, in quote unquote make sure that 
the voting went smoothly, yeah. but in actuality, they were there to intimidate other people who weren't going to vote the yeah. way that they wanted them to. And I guess it's weird for us to think about, like, today, like, paramilitary groups existing. I mean, and they do, but not to, like, the, the effect that they did back uh, post-Civil War. But you have to think about it. The U.S. didn't have a standing army at this point. After the Civil War happened, standing army went down. We didn't have large... There was federal troops, sure, but they weren't, like, in large effect everywhere. And so it was, like, very easy to start paramilitary groups. There wasn't, like, state police didn't really exist. Like, the Federal Reserve, like, didn't... What That wasn't really a thing. And so... And everyone had guns. These were all soldiers. These were all ex-soldiers who kept their arms from the war. Yeah. And so they, they were trained... They knew what they were doing because they had been in the army. And when they got sent home and disbanded, they couldn't find jobs. It's very easy to, like, those are, like, the perfect breeding ground for paramilitary groups at this time. Yeah. And it wasn't really, like, something that, like, you could fight against. Like, the uh, Bureau of uh, Firearms, Tobacco, and Alcohol, like, didn't exist at this point. There was no gun regulations, you know. But so they were, it was incredibly easy for uh, all of them to band, to start these groups. And a lot of times they did them in places where, like, the governor or, like, the sheriff was part of the group. So there there was no, like, there's no one to, like, stop them from doing it. Yeah. And so it's a, it was, like, 100% the perfect time for these groups to be made in the South. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as time went on with Reconstruction, it, it became increasingly clear that it was going to fail. Yeah. Um... Which is not surprising, in all honesty. A lot of historians have kind of tackled um, Reconstruction and kind of wrestled with it. It's a really, really difficult time in our nation's period because none of the programs that had been put in place for Reconstruction had ever existed before. And it was completely unheard of and seen as anti-American. Anything that um, Grant tried to do or implement was seen as making him a, a dictator. There's a political cartoon that uh, has uh, has a, a, a title. The title of it is called Kaiser Ulysses the First, and he's sitting on top of a, um, a a podium. He's sitting on top of Mississippi and laying down across it. He's about to stab his sword into the personified uh, Liberty or something like that, and. So eight attempts by the federal government to really enforce its laws and protect newly freed African-Americans or even white Republicans in the South was met with increasing hostility because people didn't believe that that was the government's job to do at that time. Exactly. I mean, it's like what we talked about. Like, they were trying to fight for this cultural change. Like, if you want to, like, don't ever argue that the Civil War is about states' rights. But if you, like, that was a part of it. And if you want to change that, like, fighting a war isn't a way to change that. It's, like, you know, through schooling and all these other types of things. And so just killing people won't change what, like, the politicians of the day are thinking about what should be their rights as, like, citizens uh, in the United States. And so they all, they would just, they fought back against Reconstruction just like they fought against, you know, taxes pre-Civil War. Yeah. It was the same fight just being fought uh, after a war. Yeah. And, um, and Grant has actually kind of seen a little bit of a a redemption in a lot of historians' eyes in the past few years, um, saying that, you know, he obviously failed 
yeah. Congress failed. The U.S. government failed. Um, they failed to enforce Reconstruction. They failed to uphold the and, and protect the liberties of African Americans. Um, they failed massively in all these things. Um, but a lot of historians have kind of started to say, but to be honest, Grant did the best that he could with what he had. And I think that's kind of somewhat of a redeeming quality to, to, to say. It sucks. It really, really sucks. Uh, but Reconstruction sucked. And yeah. all that sucked. And <laughs> I'm using very complex... <laughs> being very eloquent. Wow. Um, <laughs> but... It, the Klan was crushed as a formal organization in the mid-1870s. Um, Grant passed a string of laws called the Klan Acts, which effectively gave the federal government unprecedented power to try and imprison uh, members of the KKK uh, with less freedoms granted to them um, and, and really ways for them to try members of the KKK in a, 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 a kind of like a military trial, mm-hmm. saying we're going to skip the local governments, we're going to skip the state governments or state courts, and if you have a Klan case, it's going straight towards a federal judge that we know will try it more fairly. Because yeah. um, like you said, it was all about who you knew, like mayors were oftentimes just as Racist, or they were even in the Klan or these organizations. Um, and so the only way to carry out these trials fairly was to do it, you know, with a federal judge. Now, it still didn't really work. Uh, not a lot of Klan members were imprisoned um, or stopped or anything like that. But it did work in a sense that the Klan, as a formal, structured organization, whatever structure there was, was broken up. Um, it just kind of went back to things did not get better though yeah. it went to lynching exactly. and all these other forms of, of kind of cultural local um, towns doing heinous crimes but the clan itself was broken yeah exactly because I mean like yeah deacon like that would be like trying to end the mob the yeah like federal like RICO regulations which is what they use now for like mob crimes and they obviously haven't really worked still, but it's like because they're so tied up within the local and uh, government spheres that like even if you cut off a head, um, like another one pops up. Yeah. To horribly, horribly quote Hydra, wow. <laughs> um, in this case, which is like an analog for World War Two. Sorry. Well, I've been watching a lot of Marvel's Agents of Shield. So I, was, I was wondering if that's, that's where what the reference about. immediately came from. Okay. Hey, it I works. apologize uh, immensely. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so for, there was a couple decades where the Klan was was gone essentially as an organization. Then, uh, as we kind of talked about, D.W. Griffith's Birth of Nation came out, and it was heralded as a, a spectacular movie theatrical sensation. Well, yeah, that movie is so weird because it's so horribly racist, but it's such a huge part of film history because of like the film techniques he uses. Like they, I, they, I taught it at a, I took a level one, like level one hundred film intro to film class in college, and they were teaching Birth of a Nation because of like the shooting like filmography techniques that he used. So it's like this weird, weird, uh, like horrible like part of American history where he's like he's like pioneering all these like different kinds of film shots and yet he's doing it to promote like and propagate this horrible racist propaganda yeah and I forget there's like it was screened in the White House 
if I remember. Yeah, correctly. Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, Woodrow Wilson. Who's a, like a horrible race scientist. Yeah. And like believed like Asians' skulls were smaller and like they didn't have developed brain nodes. Yeah. And also screwed over, you know, the end of World War One. But that's another story. Well, it's it's kind of like with that movie, it's kind of like there's a lot of those um, Looney Tune cartoons. Yeah. And at the beginning of um, like they took place in World War Two or something like that. And at the beginning of them, there's like a little. Uh, warning or disclaimer it says this was this does not reflect the opinions of the of Warner Brothers at this time of modern day Warner Brothers this was these were products of their times please take them as such and interpret them as such and I think that's crucial we don't we cannot put away these things we cannot you know say that they never happened we can't take them and burn them and let them fade into memory we have to keep them preserve them and study them, not for the racism, not to enjoy the depiction that they have, but to appreciate them for what they are, and study them in their context and as, you know, a part of that contemporary world. Yeah. We good? I think we're good. Dope. Uh, I'm Dylan. And I'm Mitch. And that was the greatest podcast in history. The greatest podcast in history.